Welcome to the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So the next sequel on deck is Under Siege 2 Dark Territory, starring Steven Seagal, and a laundry list of just great villains throughout cinematic history. And I was lucky enough to interview one of my favorite of all time. He played the Sandman in Death Warrant, and that's one of my favorite movies. And his character is just so evil. And of course, I'm talking about actor, director, producer, writer, advertise, former advertiser, which we talk about that, Patrick Kilpatrick. We'll talk about a perfect name for a villain. And he was, to be honest, a perfect interview. Of course, we covered how he got into the industry, memorable roles. We talked about some of the actors that he worked with. But I really loved him talking about the behind the scenes and his teaching aspect, how he helps up and coming people, whether it be writers, actors or producers, about how they get to that next level. He actually offered me and my buddy who are writing scripts uh, some free advice, which was pretty funny when we talk about that part. But you're going to love Patrick. Before I start the interview, two things. Please subscribe, review, rate us, tell your friends so you don't miss out on all of our amazing content going forward and go back and check out all the other amazing sequel reviews and interviews we have. And also you got to check out Patrick's book. It's awesome. And he's in the interview he talks about volume two, but this is volume one. It's dying for a living and you can find it at patrickkillpatrick.com. I'll put it in the notes so you can find the book. Really cool. Uh, if you pay a few extra bucks, even inscribes, right? Something really nice to you. And uh, that meant a lot. So without further ado, legendary bad guy and all around just an amazing guy, Patrick Kill Patrick. What's up, man? How are you? Can you see me okay there? Yeah. yeah. How are you? Great, man. This is amazing. <laughs> where are you where are you stationed right now? I'm in Jersey. Oh, you're right, right. Cool. I love being able to do the research on people like beforehand because I know you from so many films, but I wouldn't have known you did like theater back in the eighties in New York and London. Right. Yeah. Um, I did. Uh, I didn't do a, uh, what I would consider to be a lot. I did about seven different shows. Oh, okay. It was enough to know me that I could do it really well. And I, and that background is a really valuable thing for an actor. Yeah. So how did it how did it begin for you? So you grew up in Virginia, right? Is mostly Connecticut and back and forth to Virginia for uh, prep school uh, in both places. It's uh, and and then uh, I went to college in Virginia, and so I, I consider my my life kind of a blend of rebel and Yankee kind of uh, sensibility there you go and then after college after the university of richmond where my father had gone and my mother had gone and my sister went after me and my brother after me um after that i had a girl who was then my girlfriend to new york and we got married and i spent 13 years in manhattan Oh, wow. uh, mostly as a journalist and an advertising writer. I lived at one time at Teaneck, New Jersey. Oh, okay. And uh, Port Washington, Long Island. And uh, then we moved into Manhattan. And uh, I, I rose very rapidly in the advertising and journalism worlds. Because I was a writer. 
And then I, I ended up staff at Time Incorporated, which was kind of the pinnacle of that world. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I was bored and I wanted to write a novel. So I, I left Manhattan and house, uh, split a house with an actor for about 20 years, uh, becoming a big time Broadway director. Wow. And uh, I wrote a play instead of the novel that got produced and uh, became interested in the whole acting thing because he's directing plays. I became his assistant. I um, started a theater company with people, and uh, which was a great thing because I could have agents down and see me for two or three shows. And then I did a, a production at a, a theater called Second Stage. Okay. Most people in Manhattan know Second Stage. Everybody comes to it. And I got a big-time agent out of that, and it kind of took off. Wow. How did you even think about, like, journalism or advertising, like, in high school or middle school? Like, what made you go into that field? your fam- family or parents do anything like that? Not so. Um, what, what it was was parents were big on education, and they wouldn't let me watch television much. I, I snuck a lot of it. And if you re- read my book, my mother had some – although very gifted in her own way. She had some mental health issues. And ah. kind of to escape that, I, um, I, ended up, I ended up reading like a book a day. Wow. So my er- earliest heroes were writers or characters in books. And I never thought much about acting or movies or anything. I mean, I was aware. I went to movies with my father and stuff. But I never thought of it as a career. I always thought of being a writer. Yeah, I was an athlete and I wanted to be a writer. And then I had a bad car accident and couldn't do sports for a long time. So I, I became a writer and I went to New York and that's what I became. Wow. So it's crazy that you didn't even think about acting. So you're like a legendary bad guy. Obviously, uh-huh. it's, on, it's, it's part of the title of your book. Like that is you. So Vernon Wells, who was in Commando and he played Wes in Mad Max 2. Sure, Road Warrior. Yeah, yeah. He and I traded jobs a lot. Yeah. Well, we did. There are certain guys that I would run into, and he would get the job, or I would get the job, or Brian Thompson is another one. Oh, okay. He kind of segued off into directing. Anyway, Vernon, good actor, very good in Road Warrior. Yeah, so he wanted to be. He was in Australia, and he was, like, directing commercials. And that's all he wanted to yeah. do. Like, he didn't want to be in front. And then they kind of, like, he got kind of, like, forced into it. And then, obviously, it changed. Yeah. Well, he was clearly a very buff guy then. Yeah. You know, he was pretty big in Road Warrior. Yeah, he didn't want to do it. He- well, kind of a thankless job, but he became famous for it. Done some Star Trek jobs. You know, it's, it, it's much better to be an officer than a, um, an alien because of the makeup, Yeah, you know? And you did that. That was a cool picture. I never, I wasn't like the biggest Star Trek fan, but those photos were uh, pretty neat to see on your IMDb. Yeah, it's a crazy process. You know, you're there at four o'clock in the morning. And if you're a guest star, like I was for that, not a regular like Michael Dorn, if you're a regular, they, they figure out how to do it really fast. Like they'll do whole segments and then they just slap it on. But if you're a guest star and they're coming up with a new character, 
they're putting it on for like two and a half hours. And then you're, it takes an hour and a half just to take it off. And um, I used to be so physically active on those shows that literally by the end of the day, the makeup would be falling off of me because I was, you know, doing my own stunts and things. So, um, so your first credits. So in 84, there's two things that are on there. Was the first thing that you had, was that edge of night or was it toxic Avenger? Uh, it's hard to tell because toxic Avenger was not a SAG film. Yeah, I'm sure. My first SAG film was Insignificance, but Edge of Night would have been an after a project oh, at okay. the time. SAG and after hadn't merged. So at, the soaps were an after a project. I suspect that Toxic Avenger was first because Toxic Avenger, from my experience, was kind of a, a student film. I had done a lot of student films at New York University, and then I saw the ad for this or something, and I went over and, and did it. And to my mind, it was a non-union film, and it was kind of just a step up from student film. Edge of Night was a real job. That was a, a, a real job. And I did a couple of those. Yeah, it was a bunch of, I think, 12 episodes. Edge of Night was on for 26. 20- seven years I think or 31 years and I joined it and they closed two weeks later (laughs) and then I joined another world that had been on like 30 years and it closed two weeks later (laughs) and I began to think am I the kiss of death these shows so uh yeah you you suddenly get your first job all of a sudden the whole circus goes out goes out yeah so it was that was kind of weird. How did that first audition, you were doing the student films and you saw an ad for, you know, Toxic Avenger and you're like, you know, what? I want to try to step something up. So that at that point, you were already like, I want to try being an actor. Yeah, I mean, I've been an actor for a long time before that because I told you I started my own. Yeah, yeah. I was in a different play like every, you know, month. Uh, because that was the glory of starting your own theater with three other people in a church. And we had a great theater. It was a great blessing because, you know, I was writing for the theater. I was doing a different play. And agents particularly respond to you right away. But they would come to the second, the third production that you were in. And then maybe they'd get you an audition for another world. They wouldn't sign you, but they'd get you an audition. In those days, you could actually have more than one agent. Really? That was an accepted project, a process then. It's not now. But yeah, so they weren't committed to you and you weren't really committed to them. But they'd send you on on an audition. And that's how Another World and Edge of Night happened. So would that be like different TV agents or would you have like a movie agent and a TV agent? Would they, something like that? I had a whole slew of agents. I mean, some of them became big agencies. The one out of second stage was APA, which of course became a big agency. And I ended up back with them in New York, but there was, I can't even remember the names, Doug. I mean, they were sure. like, the Brett Adams agency and things like that, that in some ways they don't really exist anymore. A lot of agencies that I've had over the years, you know, they fade, the people retire or they're just gone. 
Yeah, I'm sure it's like everything. There's there used to be like how many car manufacturers. Now there's only like five or six. They can't sustain it. Yeah, I mean the other day I saw the Geo. Oh my god, a Geo tracker. A, a convertible Geo. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's the, the coolest looking car. But I guess who made Geo? I can't remember. I don't know. So, yeah, it, New York at that time was a really wide open place as a working actor. You were respected if you were a working actor. And you, it kind of, you did off-Broadway, you did the soaps, you did theater, you did Broadway, you did the movies of the week, you'd do a, a, a European film that would come to town, you'd do an L film that came to uh, New York to cast. So that was kind of the gig there. When did you make the trek out west? What was the film or like the TV show that got you to go out there? Well, I got I got flown out for a couple of jobs. There was a, a job that I was flown out for called Our Family Honor, which starred Michael Madsen nice. and uh, Eli Wallach, who was one of my heroes. Oh, cool. Kenny McMillan, who was also one of my heroes. I don't know if you... Even though who I don't know the last two names. I know Michael Madsen, but that's pretty cool. People that you admired, you were able to work with early on. Let me tell you how great Eli Wallach was. Eli Wallach is the ugly in Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Oh, okay. That's the name of our show, The Good, the Bad, and the Sequel. Yes. And so Eli Wallach, you should know who Eli Wallach is. Because yeah. He's one of the greatest character actors of all time. Absolutely brilliant. And... He was the ugly in the good bad. Lee Van Cleef was the bad, and Clint Eastwood was the good. Of course. And the ugly was Eli Wallach, one of the great character actors of all time. He was in Godfather 3, and he played uh, something. He's a fantastic character actor. And at the time, he and Kenny McMillan and a guy named Charles Durning, the highest paid character actors in the world. Wow. And they were making about a quarter of a million dollars a year. That was a lot of money then. Oh, yeah. So it was a great privilege to come out. And Michael Madsen was just starting out, and he was the kind of young uh, Mr. Cool uh, kid on the show. And Kenny McMillan, Eli Wallach. And it was kind of like a oh, spinoff of The Godfather. It was about family of cops, family of mafioso and their relationship. Anyway, they flew me out here to guest star on the show. And I had done everything you could do in New York, really. I mean, I had done all I a European film, um, uh, an L.A. film. I'd done off-Broadway. I'd done Broadway stuff. I'd assistant directed on Broadway. I'd directed off-Broadway. I'd, uh, in the West End of London, I'd, I did a a European film that was really... So I'd, I'd done a couple of movies of the week. And what television episodic I there was in New York, which at the time was The Equalizer, yeah, was there. I don't know if you remember that show. And then Spencer for Hire was up in Boston. So I'd kind of done New York. And I was, you know, I was up for a change. So I saw that at the time there were 164 television shows in L.A., and I was making a fair amount of my money. I'd done the soaps in New York, too. So I said, how about a change? You know, how about... I was spending about 50 grand a, a year on dry cleaning. Because at the time, New York's air was terribly dirty. Yeah. And uh, 
Also, New York is kind of a hellhole then. I hear it's becoming a hellhole again. Yeah. But Giuliani came in after I left and cleaned it up. So I was up for a change. So I, I packed my then wife up and we drove out to L.A. And uh, I'm glad I came when I did, though, because those actors I knew in New York, they had to come later. And it wasn't as easy. You know, I immediately started doing guest star things here on a much greater scale. And I started doing action films, which is not something that I ever did in L.A. Yeah. I mean, in New York. So, um, you know, you kind of do the work that's there. Um, I had done action theater and been kind of did my own sword fighting and all of that on theater. So it was just a natural progression. And I ended up doing a lot of different, what I would call B-movies out here and a lot of uh, supporting parts in big action films. And that was the work. What would you say was the one that changed it for you, that they were like, we need to get Patrick Kilpatrick as a villain? Because there's that string of, kind of like, but there's like a string of like seven, eight years you're going against. Because there's always a good guy. But a good guy is only as good as the bad guy. So there's like so yeah. many movies that you're in. Was there the one that changed it? Was it like Death Warrant as the Sandman or? You know, people actually ask, ask this a lot, Doug. But honestly, for me, it was just a volume thing. It was just yeah. work, 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 work. Oh, yeah. No, I know that. But I wonder if the people, the higher above, that were like reaching out. Well, here's how it goes. If you do it a Warner Brothers show... You're going to guest star on all of the Warner Brothers shows in a really quick, short of time, okay? Because they watch each other's show. So you're going to do – you do Sarah Connor Chronicles, and then you're going to be on Chuck, and you're going to do all of those shows. And you think you're never going to stop working because it just goes like that. Boom, 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 boom. And then all of a sudden, you've done all their, their shows, and that's over. So then you'll do the Paramount shows and you'll do, so it kind of works like that. Oh, okay. You know, and commercials, somebody will do a good commercial and then they're in five or six commercials all over the place because they all watch the thing and they go, wow, I want that. I want that. I want that. So I just worked, you know, and when work stopped, like the writer's strike in 1987, I taught myself how to write scripts Oh, nice. Because I don't care how busy you are, you're going to have some downtime. So uh, I've been very lucky. I worked a lot. But, you know, 9-11 happened. People don't realize there was no acting work for about 18 months after 9-11. Why? Because all the money dries up. They used to think that the entertainment business was separate from the rest of the economic thing. Like in the Depression... People went to see the movies, even though there were stock crashes and soup kitchens and depression. Yeah. But 9-11 proved that we weren't immune because the world financing system went down. So you're going to go through slow periods. For me, I'm really grateful that I just wrote or I produced or I public speak or I I had a family. So I had to keep working. So I just kept doing it. No, so some of the favorite, like, there's a ton of movies, but obviously, like, Death Warrant, your character in that movie is yeah. awesome. And just that end fight scene is so cool. And then you coming out of the 
the fire and so like that was that the first movie that you were doing like hand-to-hand fighting there were about 15 years where i was always fighting somebody oh yeah but that probably launched a bunch of things mostly i mean i started out playing good guys and then you do a couple of parts like death warrant and (laughs) playing bad guys for the rest of your life uh i um that was probably the biggest, most significant martial arts thing up till that point. Then after that, all I mean, you know, there's Steven Seagal, and then there was Arnold, and then there was there are leading guys I can't even remember their names. You know, uh, you know, in the B realm, that yeah, yeah, Canadian Canadian Jean Claude Van Damme, and you know the. Um, so, the, yeah, there was 15 years there where there was always fighting of some kind. I love doing stunts, but I like to do things more than just fighting. Like, I yeah. like driving. I like driving. I like blasting through a window with two guns once or, you know, something new. You know? Yeah. The fighting got a little bit old. I still do it. Yeah. If it's required. I've kind of got to an age where I'm like the boss, so I've got other people to do the fight. Yeah, you just point and then they do it. Yeah. yeah you know, you're the general. <laughs> you go fight. I uh, I do like doing new things. Of course. Yeah, you always want to like broaden your horizons, try different things and roles wise. But so one movie I have to yeah. mention that I love you in, and I just interviewed Eric Roberts uh, last month. Yeah. Was Best of the Best 2. Yeah, I know you worked with him a few other times, but Best of the Best 2, your role as Finch was awesome. Well, thanks, man. But there's a perfect example. Best of the Best 2 was the first job I had after the worldwide real estate recession Uh. collapsed in 1991. In 1991, and I went from working all the time, 1991, there was a worldwide real estate recession. All the independent money dried dried up. Oh, wow. And I didn't work for uh, about eight or nine months, okay? And I was so angry. By the time I went into the best of the best two audition, I think I actually did the audition and then, like a good German soldier, I clicked my heels and bowed. I mean, I was so angry, I didn't care. And I booked a job. But it was, it was the first time back after a long time. Yeah, and just the attitude you had in that movie. And, like, talking about your boss now, like Wayne Newton being the boss was... That was, a, that was kind of a trip, yeah. Robert Adler, uh, Radler, um, the director... I also made a lifelong friend on there with Ralph Mueller, you know, the big giant guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From Gladiator. Hell, yeah. Really fun guy. Really. I mean, and I, you know, we became friends because I would tease him. Because, you know, I'm a big guy. You are, yeah. Ralph Mueller makes me look like, I mean, like, you know, he's like Mr. Universe or whatever. And I would go by him and going by his bicep was like, going by a planet, you know? And I would say stuff to him like, where does a guy like you get your Speedo briefs? 
you know, sort of vaguely homoerotic stuff to him. And uh, he laughed. He thought he had a really good sense of him. So we became really good friends. He's a fabulous guy to have lunch with. That's awesome. No, there's some lines that you have in that movie that are so good. Like the guy that's on your team, like a bad guy with you, like comes over to tell you information. He touches you and you don't even pro. I don't know if that was in the script or like ad libbed, but you're like, who said you can touch me? Most of those things are not in the script. No, that's the no. Best. it's just, you're playing with it. I just did a movie called Nightwalk. Every, almost every word I said was improv. Oh, that's awesome. The movie just won best script at the Prague Film Festival. And I'm like, who the hell's going to win that script? Am I? Because I made up everything that's in the movie, in, in my part anyway. Now, there was a script and the writer, director worked really hard on it. But, you know, you kind of wonder at some, who's supposed to get the award. No, I'm very lucky. I'm a good improv person. It's a very great, I teach a lot of acting in, um, and writing and directing and producing and stuff to people and, uh, and to actors and entertainment warriors. And one of the great skills to have is improvisation. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What's that like giving back and uh, teaching? Well, I love it. It's not all giving back. I mean... There's nothing better than actually to give somebody who's got the ability and works hard and has the physical capability to do it and give them the ethics and the tools that they need to get working really fast. And that's really what I specialized in and is getting removing anything that's stopping you from working you know a lot of acting classes they make their whole living from that so they keep people in class of course and I'm, I'm not a big believer in people i'm a big believer in let's get you to the point where you're getting hired and then you can learn on the set and i can coach you maybe a little bit on the side or for that part but I'm not into keeping people in class for years. Women particularly tend to stay in class way too long. They need to take that energy out into the professional world and, and start learning there because every job is a learning deal. So you might as well be getting paid for it. No. And you're right. Who would want to hire like a boxing trainer that the guy never wins? You want somebody that is, because that's good for you. If you have somebody that, goes out, books a big job two, three years down the road, you have that connection with him. So that's got to be really cool. Well, yeah. And I'm actually, to some of it is, it has, some of it is, I want you to be brilliant, not just in acting, because yeah. I teach acting, writing, directing, and producing and distribution to some extent. So it's like, because you need to know all of those things. And I want you to go out and, I want us to create something brilliant and I want you to come back and maybe hire me yeah. or 
I'll end up producing your job or, or that kind of thing. So, yeah, I'm always looking for good people. Now, the, the intangibles, though, Doug, are what's interesting because you'll come into your office. I mean, I'll have a student and they're 60 years old and they're not what you would call traditionally beautiful. I think they're beautiful as people and I think they're beautiful as beings, but they're not what you would call you know, your standard deal, and yet they never stop working. Yeah. And it's a function of their own drive and their own maturity and their own. And then you'll have somebody who's absolutely got the goods physically to do it and even mentally, but they, they don't have the, the drive or the, the tenacity to go after it. So you never know who's going to turn into that person who's going to be a real success. You just try to give everybody. I, I tend to get rid of people if they, it's clear they don't have the drive. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, because I'm not really interested in teaching somebody uh, and coddling them and whatever. Um, this is highly creative work, and it takes a lot of vision and a lot of drive. But it's not rocket science. You can be taught how to do it. And yet, if you're not implementing it because of personal lack of discipline or something like that, I'm not really interested much. <laughs> I'd rather spend my time writing a script and raising the money for that and yeah. doing something because life is too short, really. Either put up or shut up. You know, <laughs> if I see three or four sessions and somebody is not delivering the goods, I'd say, you know, you really don't belong here. You need to be finding something that you can be truly passionate about. Do you have to be like a lot of people I interview and you hear their stories about like how they got started. Like one guy I interviewed works on Sesame street. Now he's a puppeteer for Ernie. He like yeah. slept on a guy's couch for like um, six weeks. It was a yeah. small apartment just so he can learn how to do what he has to do. Worked at night, went to school during the day. And th those are the drive. Those are the people that make it. I've done a lot of acting work, but the bottom line is it was because, as you say, I was willing to leave my home, go and sleep on a flatbed of a truck so I was fresh the next morning and could deliver the goods or to move heaven and earth because you've gotten material the night before and you're going to be performance ready the next day. There are no excuses. I just don't get it. If you're a Navy SEAL or you're a ranger or you're a medical emergency room nurse, there's no excuses. No. You have to deliver the goods. Um, if you're a radio host, you deliver the goods. You have to, I don't think that, that any life but that is worth living, to be honest. Look, I have fun. You got to rest sometimes. You got to recharge your batteries. But on the way to a goal, there's, I, I don't accept that there's something in the way. And people, people let it go too easily. Well, they're in the wrong field. No, you have to. Like the one thing on your IMDb that's mind-blowing is over 18-month period, five major studio films, two independent films, and 27 TV guest star spots. That's unbelievable. Did you sleep? 
Well, people look at my resume sometimes and they wonder if I ever take a vacation because I never really stop. And I, I do, as I say, recharge myself. Yeah. No, I mean, about halfway through that process, I realized, well, I'm not getting paid Bruce Willis money, but I'm getting the greatest repertory experience you possibly can get as an American actor. Yeah. Because those 27 guest star things, I wasn't offered those jobs. I had to read one and two, sometimes three times to book them. And so that's a lot of competition. That's a lot of going out there and bang. I mean, I, actors who know, they go, that's the hard way. That's the, that's. So when I run into actors that are, I mean, come on, you know who I'm talking about. They're just, they're not very, you know, and by the way, I'm a director and a producer now, and you have to learn how to negotiate the foibles of people. Yeah. Really, really, (laughs) really? Are you here because you want to deliver the goods and you believe in the craft of acting and because you believe in, serving the global audience and the investor in the film and stuff like that. Really? And you, you can't be bothered to learn your lines. No, you don't belong in this business, but what can I tell you? No, I know that's coming out. I read an article not too long ago, not to name names. I'm not going to name names, but there's like a few. I do. I do in my, I I do in my book. Oh, you do. Okay. I'm, I'm going to order it. Well, listen, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the truth. Oh no, I know. Don't get me wrong. I love a lot of these people that fall into the pit of indulgence and fall into the pit of self involvement and things like that. None of us are perfect and all of us have our foibles, but there's a lot of slippery slopes that people go down and, and their careers usually reflect that sooner or later it catches up with you. So nobody expects you to be perfect human being, but you better be dedicated to your craft. Just like a fireman is dedicated to going to a fire and saving people's lives. Yeah. Just like a doctor has to. Just like you're not special because you're an actor. It doesn't absolve you of the fact that you really need to deliver something to the rest of the human race that is elevating for them. I mean, I mean, I recently, I've done almost 200 films and television shows. Tomorrow... I saw something that I found interesting. So tomorrow I'm starting an acting class. Nice. And, and, and I've been a writer, an actor for 35 years. And I've been a writer for since 87. I've been a writer since I was in my teens, but a professional screenwriter since 1987. And a couple of years I took a screenwriting class and I learned a lot even though I'd gotten paid a lot of money to play or do scripts. So you have to figure out how to keep it fresh and how to stimulate yourself. And I'm being long winded. The truth is though, what else do we have, Doug? I know. I mean, you can't take materialism with you. No. 
You know, you, you, you can take the love of your family and your children and your relationship with the universe and God or whatever you want to call it, that you can take with you. But other than that, a legacy of having really done delivered craft for what you're doing, that's about it. I mean, I want to take that T-shirt that you're wearing uh, into the next life with me. But um, truthfully, we can't take it. it. I don't know. Everybody comes to their own conclusions. That's what I've come to. In the end, look, uh, Robert Mitchum said, at six o'clock, all the pretty people go home and the government takes all your money. The tax man takes all your money. And to some extent, that's true. Yeah. So what are you left with? You're left with, did you deliver the goods as a human being? You know, they asked Olivier what he wanted to be remembered as. He's probably the greatest actor of the first half of the 20th century. He said, I want to be remembered as a working man. And that's really kind of it. For me, when I write something or whatever, I want to deliver the goods and I want people to go, wow, he was a really good writer. He was a really good actor. He was a really good guy. He was a really good father. So all of this self-indulgent stuff, you're just making yourself ridiculous. So, what's the so did you ever go back when, when you were writing as a kid? Did you, uh, I don't know if you kept any of that stuff or did you ever think back and like use that for any like ideas or scripts that you're writing? What, my kids? Uh, no, my no, you, like your screenwriting ideas. Like you said you used to write as a teenager. Did you ever like use some of those stories? Yeah, I, or? Initially, I didn't take myself as a writer very seriously, so. I wrote stuff in college and for classes and things. And then they'd come around and they'd go, can we have that? And can we publish it? And I'd go, I don't even have it anymore. I threw it away, you know, cause I didn't take it seriously. It was only until I got out of college and began to work as a professional writer that I began saving things and backing things up and that kind of thing. No, initially, I was kind of shocked that other people liked it. Yeah. I thought, whoa. Like, I wrote something about my parents and how my relationship with my parents made me cry one time. And the editorial magazine of the university came by and said, do you have that? We want to publish it. And I was like, no, I didn't think anything of it. I didn't have it. But soon enough... I knew I was pretty good at writing because I was very lucky. I got into advertising writing and really you have to write in such a way that people will reach in their pockets and send money. Yeah. And that has to be pretty compelling. So you learn a lot from that process. I mean, I have a lot of writing students not a lot, but some writing students right now. And in some ways, You have to bring them along, but nothing, nothing teaches you about being a good writer more than being a professional writer at a newspaper or a magazine or something or an advertising agency, because you have to get rid of all of this mysteries of writer's block. You have to come up with the deadline right then. You have to come up with the ad in a couple of moments. You have to do stuff like that fast. So that's the finest, finest 
battleground for a writer in the, in, in the professional arena. Yeah, that's perfect because you got it. Like you mentioned, like an ad, it's a short burst that people read reaching their pocket. And when you're writing, like me and my buddy just wrote a script and we've had a couple of meetings with like producers, people that we have connections with a little bit. So it makes it a little bit easier, but it's all about like the log lines, that little bit that they read. And it's like that eye catching thing. So you having that experience way back then is huge. Well, people did. And then it was looked down upon what was called direct response or direct mail advertising. Yeah. That was the armpit of the advertising world. What was actually the pinnacle was what I call image advertising. Like you see a Volkswagen driving along with a pretty girl and that's an image ad, ad. but there's no way to track the success of that ad. Oh, that's true. Then now they can do certain analytics and stuff, but direct response advertising has an 800 number on it. It demands an action. They order the magazine, they order the product. So you figure out very quickly what works and what generates millions and millions of dollars. They use it to great skill to raise money for politicians. So what was the armpit of the advertising world actually became the dominant force in advertising. Now you want to be able to track analytically what's working and what's not. It's actually very close to the advertising world. If, if I'm selling sneakers and I know, I know intuitively what's motivating that kid to buy those sneakers. Now, they can have the research department down the hall and they so oh, the people between 13 and 18 buy X amount of dollars and this and stuff. I don't need that a lot of times because I know how to become that kid. And I know what's driving him to buy that sneaker. So I can write addressing that need. If you, if you're a football coach, what does a football coach want to do? Win. Exactly. That's it. So you write something that feeds right into that need. Nobody has to tell you about the glory of winning football games. Okay? And this wishbone defense book is going to help you win football games. So it's very much like acting. You're putting yourself into the position of another person. I'm not saying research isn't valuable. I'm just saying you either intrinsically know it or you, you, you don't. Um, yeah. That, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. That was really cool to hear that. So a couple of the movies, there's so many things to talk about, but uh, I, I obviously can't. By the way, as far as your movies go. Yeah and you're taking meetings with people, that's a really valuable thing. Yeah, we have my hometown. One of the guys that works on, he writes on The Simpsons, and he works on uh, F for Family, the Bill Burr uh, animated uh, show on Netflix. So yeah, he went to school, my parents and my buddy's parents, my co-writer, and uh, yeah, so we met with him. He gave us really good notes. Met with another guy, got really good notes. And then this other my buddy's professor, my buddy has a master's in writing. So I'm one of those guys that 
can throw out the, I, the dialogue because I watch a lot of film and stuff. So I know like dialogue and how to say it. He makes it look nice. And he throws in good ideas too. But we have this great combination because he has a master's in writing. He's wrote novels. So uh, his professor at University of New Orleans, he's a writer. He has a Netflix animated movie coming out next year. So we met with him and we told him the idea. And he was like, wow. He's like, I gotta be honest, Tom. He goes, I thought this was going to be a really shit idea. And I really thought I was just going to have to pretend to be nice. So he's like, dude, send me the script. I'll read it. And I'll give you guys notes and like talk to my manager. Well, that's great. Yeah. And everybody's journey is in. Um, I'm very guarded about releasing our material on any level. Yeah. Well, I registered it. I, I interviewed some writers. So I like reached out and got some advice. I didn't say like, hey, read my script. I was like, what should I do when I'm done with it? So they said register yeah. it with WGA. So it has sure. some protection. So now that made me feel well, like. I call, I call Hollywood the culture of theft. No, I bet. No, it's true. You need a lawyer too. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily because your journey may be different than other people. But the vast majority of writers and stuff like that, the horror stories that they can tell you are crazy. Now, that doesn't mean you want to go down the world thinking that I'm going to get ripped off. But the more crafted and attractive your project is, the greater you're running risk of it being ripped off. No, that makes sense. That's why we're not going to like just send it out to people. Be very careful. And I would get a lawyer. Okay. You know, so that you're guarding yourself. You don't want to come in heavy. Yeah. But you want to make sure that you're covered. No, that's good advice. Well, I do that for a living. Yeah, no, you do. (laughs) I help people get their projects funded. How much do I owe you? (laughs) I'm letting you go just because of the publicity value, but certainly getting a good attorney is something that I recommend to everybody. No, that's good. So one thing we kind of mentioned before, and we were talking about like actors. So I've interviewed a lot of people. I work with Seagal over the years. Yeah. How was it working with him? Well, as I talk about in my book, and it was pretty funny. I mean, I have a, whole chapter that blends the difference between working with Steven Spielberg and the difference between Spielberg and and Seagal. (laughs) You don't really work with Steven. He kind of lands and he does his thing and knocks over a C-stand and then he goes back into a helicopter or wherever he goes and you don't work with him. I mean, uh, To some extent. And by the way, some of that is based on my character within the things. My character never really had a fight with Steven. Although I I proposed to him that we have a machine gun battle together, each with a a, a submachine gun in our hands, and we have a a martial arts fight while we're doing the machine gun. And he wouldn't do it with me, which I talk about in the book, and I don't understand why. You don't even have to put the explosions in because you can put them in after post-production. Yeah, but yeah. It's interesting when you run into situations where people don't want to go for, further artistically. Look, uh, I'm going to direct you to my book. Oh, yeah. Volume two that's, volume two that's coming out. Oh, Because sweet. I could sit here and Stephen 
Stephen and I actually got along because I don't get grief from a lot of people because, you know, I have who I am and then they're who they are and, and I get along with everybody and, and that kind of thing. But my overriding notion after working with Stephen was if that was a movie star, I didn't want to be a movie star. But in fact, that's not what a movie star is. I mean, my wife and I get a lot of enjoyment out of watching Steven's current movies because they're really kind of like high camp. You know, it's like uh, the model is a young guy who does all the martial arts, but an attractive young girl who inexplicably is attracted to Steven rather than the young guy. And the, the dialogue is a mixture of, I call it Asian, violent Asian gobbledygook. And so they're pretty funny to watch. It's not really great cinema or anything, but it's really fabulous to watch because it's a good laugh. And, you know, you got to have shoe polish hair. Yeah. You got to take black shoe polish and, or a black shoe polish uh, mustache. <laughs> it sounds like I'm being terrible to Stephen, but the truth is, Doug, my whole life I've had a dichotomy. On the one hand, I've had this journalist sensibility. Yeah. And on the other hand, I've had this spiritual sensibility. And they're always fighting with each other. The spiritual person says nothing negative about anybody. The journalist tells the truth as they see it. Although we live in a time when journalists don't, the journalists don't tell the truth at all now too so that system of media is destroyed but in my life it's always been a struggle between the spiritual and the thing and the truth and the journalist always wins for me yeah no it's true and the, the reason i asked you so i've interviewed a lot of people that worked with steven like all throughout his career so like william sadler and hard to kill and even yeah. stories back then. Well, this, notoriously, there are a lot of people who have had funny stories about Steven. <laughs> but what's crazy is that, I'm sure you know the whole story about how he, how it all happened, like how he became big. He did like, he went to the Warner Brothers lot, did a demonstration, and whoever was the head of Warner Brothers then was like, I love this guy. And then he did, trying to think what a, it wasn't out for justice. What was the, I forgot what the first one was. Uh, it was with Pam Greer. Uh, it called Hard to Kill or something like that. No, Hard to Kill was like, I think, the third one. But whatever yeah. the first one was, it did so well. So he never had those, like, comeuppance. And I interviewed a guy that directed one of those movies you're talking about. Like, it was like a 2010 one. And he was like, Stephen was barely in the movie. Any time that it was like a faraway shot, they had like a stunt double do like his walking or running. And you yeah. could clearly see it. Well, Look, Stephen's career is reflective of how he is as a human being. Look at the difference between him and Arnold. You know, Arnold's still rolling along. Look, now, look, all of us get diminished and go through phases because the action arena alters and changes and morphs and passes people by and stuff like that. But Stephen's career is reflective of somebody who was a massive ego and the universe. I'm not going to say punishes you for that, but the universe responds to it. Whereas if if you're Sean Penn, the universe responds to whoever Sean Penn is. If you're Benicio del Toro, 
it, it, it responds to whoever you are as Benicio del Toro and Patrick Kilpatrick. I don't, you know, I don't know that the universe always gives you what you quote deserve, but I think there's a higher purpose to the way the universe works. I've had times where I felt like I was completely ignored as an actor when I gave it my all in every single job I did. But I also came to the conclusion that that gave me more space to develop my own movies and my own projects and to do other things. And I can't complain. I've had a really good run. I actually reserve all my scathing for these people for in the book. Okay. And they deserve a lot of scathing. Well, I'm going to check that one out. So just one perfect segue that you were just mentioning about, like, it's yeah. cool that you're doing the, the writing and all these different films. So the, the Ice Cream Man, that looks yeah. awesome. Just the premise and the photos. and I actually own the rights to all of that. And I wrote it. Look, it was a really good idea. And I admire those guys for coming up with the idea. They came up with a good idea and they hired me to shoot the teaser. And I had a, a lot of fun with it. And unfortunately, a lot of times people have this idea that's really good, but they don't know how to take it further and they don't know how to raise the money to do it, stuff like that. So I actually kind of own the Ice Cream Man. And if I ever get a chance, it's something that I actually, because I, I, I outlined and wrote a script for it but I just haven't taken the time to raise the money for it because it was patently obvious that the people, by the way, I worked with them in other teasers and short films oh, okay. and, and they're pretty funny. I mean, take a look at gun safety, gun wrong, gone wrong. <laughs> gun safety, gone wrong. Okay. Okay. Matthew Nye, very creative guy, but I knew they weren't going to be able to raise the money to do the movie. So I have to do the raising of the movie, of uh, the money. It's, it's not on the front burner for my film company, yeah. but I'm glad you like it. And I, there's a whole really, really interesting script behind that that can be done if I ever get a chance in my lifetime to, <laughs> to flesh it out. So what's your process of getting like the films made? Like, do you do that for your own films? Do you do like shoot teasers to to bring to, to investors? No, no, because the teasers I would want to do. In fact, we just, I was getting ready to shoot a teaser uh, and then COVID happened and it made it very much more difficult. But I said, screw it. If they want to see footage, let them give me a hundred thousand dollars to shoot the footage. Yeah. What I try to do, not try, succeed to do, hopefully, is create materials that instantly convey something to them. That here is somebody who's a master at imagery and story. Unfortunately, scripts alone don't do that. So we create visual materials that do do that. So I wish you luck, and I think it sounds like you're doing really well, by giving your scripts to someone and something like that may turn into something real. Yeah, we'll for us, <laughs> for us, it's a very different process. Yeah, I'm sure. It's to create uh, visual materials that 
not only knocks them down, they want to meet with you, but it, it instantly shows that you have mastery of imagery and storytelling. And it's not always a textural thing. It's an imagey, image thing. I come from script writing, and I'm very script-centric. And you got to have that script there to back up if they like the idea. Yeah. Instantly, you've got to have that script there. And it's got to be brilliant. But I'm not convinced that a script is the best way to go into Mostly people don't read scripts, Doug. No, I know. It's not like it used to be. They had like this script pile when they would like be doing a, a TV show and they'd be like, oh shit, we're all out of ideas. Let's go through yeah. the pile, like the specs. They don't well, do that. We all live such busy lives. And it's like, you know, you have to, it has to be positioned from the point of view how is it to the advantage of the person to fund your movie? Okay. They don't give a damn about your idea. Yeah. They don't give a damn about your script. Why is it an advantage for them to write a check for th- your thing? So they want to make money back on it. That's what it's all about. That's, that's one of the things. Yeah. Some people aren't governed by money because they've got so much. Oh, that's true, yeah. They're governed by, they want to participate in the glamorous world of film and television. Yeah. They want a, a tax write-off. They want to take something home to their parents that they're proud of having done. They want to change the cultural landscape. They're Jewish and they want more Jewish content. They're Arab. They want more Arab content. They're black. They want more black content. So that's about it. That's really why people invest in movies. Now, if you've got a platform like Hulu or Amazon, why do they invest in it? Because if they don't, audiences are going to go somewhere else where the content is. No, that's true. That's their motive. That's their modus operandi. You know, all of my acting people, I, I teach them, your real goal isn't just to be a brilliant actor. Your goal is to be a grand storyteller. Because you need to write, direct, and produce, and act. Yeah. And the same thing held true for Mel Gibson, as Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and uh, Goldie Hawn, you know, before your time. Oh, the best. I suggest you hire me sometime, and I'll show you how to get your project funded. Yeah, that'd be awesome, man. We'll talk about that. That's cool. I think we, for sure, nothing is guaranteed, but we would certainly give you your best shot. Now, you may step in it. You may, your friend that you just gave this, he may pick it up and he may make it. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) But I wouldn't base my whole business model on that one friend. Oh, no, I know that. (laughs) You know, so... um, Unfortunately, and it's a big disillusionment for somebody like yourselves and my, uh, you can be a King Hell scriptwriter, but that's not what's going to get your movie made. It's a whole different set of circumstances getting things funded. No, I'm sure. Well, it is, and it's a disillusionment for somebody, because we all labor really hard on our scripts. But 
we all labor really hard on the development of our pictures. You got to persuade somebody to write a check. No, I know that's what it is. And it's, uh, that's really what it comes down to. It's kind of, I know that's, it's been great with doing like how being able to pick the, your brain. And I've interviewed like over a hundred people, like all different parts of the industry. And it's fun being able to like hear that these little tidbits. So I feel like it's helped me and motivated me like the last six months. And well, I think actually starting a podcast is a good thing because you can escape paying fees for people like me. <laughs> in the beginning, I would not have thought of this. Me and my buddy used to write stuff and do sketches and stuff back in high school. And we like just because of COVID, we started doing it Zoom once a week. Listen, I have a young man that's studying with me right now. He's been writing since he was 11 years old, just in a room writing, watching movies. I call that communing with masters. He's been watching how other people do things, and it's important. You got to do that. But it's so far from actually getting the movie made. Yeah. And by the way, you should be thinking in terms of how to get the movie made when you're doing the writing, too. Yeah. These are things that happen as you go along and stuff like that. There's a way to launch an acting career. You have two choices. You can do it in an A-list way, or you can wander in the wilderness way. Which way do you want to do? Oh, well, nice to be an A-lister, but I don't know. With this mug, it'd probably be C-lister wandering in the forest. A-list sounds like a real superficial contact. I only use it as a metaphor, but there's nobody. The worst feeling in the world is to wander in the wilderness. <laughs> yeah, and you can waste decades. And by the way, I've learned this too. I've learned it's better to hire the finest people and pay more for them and get the finest project than it is to scrimp and save and try to drag other people into the 21st century. No, you're going to end up you're going to end up spending more money that way than just plunking down the right amount of money for the right person. No, that's true. So what else can I do for you, young No, man? this has been amazing. So one thing that was re- like really cool that this is even about your career because I love the – I usually talk more about like different films people were in, but this has been a great conversation. And thanks so much for taking the time. But one thing I thought was awesome was back in October 2017 – you were able to teach a master class at the New York Film Academy Veterans Advancement Program. Sure. That must have been cool because you're back home, your second home, so, sort of. Well, my father was a, a Silver Star recipient oh, uh, wow. in World War II and a Purple Heart. So I always grew up, um, and I grew up in the post-war period, and – so I always believed in American exceptionalism and American patriotism and the sacrifice that people made in World War II all over the world um, to rid the world of fascism and, and uh, one of the most barbaric regimes in the history of mankind that was emanating out of Japan. So I was always predisposed towards military people. 
So when I got to LA and I ran into the anti-military atmosphere here, it just wasn't going to fly for me. So on many levels, I've been very fortunate over the years to be very supportive of our military and particularly our wounded warriors. Part of the proceeds goes to the Disabled Veterans of America for the book. So um, the, what was the question? Oh, no, uh, I was helping, saying, yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, that was arranged by the, ch- yeah, a chaplain over there. People don't realize that film schools are packed with veterans because film schools are um, expensive. You know, they're not cheap. Yeah. Whether it's New York University or AFI or New York Film Academy or Los Angeles Film uh, School. And so veterans have the GI Bill and they can roll that over to pay for their tuition. So there were about 300 veterans over at the New York Film Academy. And I was happy to go over them uh, over there and uh, give them the benefit of whatever my experience was. And, and in the same way that I was happy to do it at Hampton Sydney College, which is one of the oldest universities in the country, and at University of Wisconsin or Texas or a private person. Yeah, it is wonderful to give back. It's wonderful to be able to pick up a phone because you've seen something in somebody and to be able to hook them up with their dreams just like that. Yeah. That's a fabulous thing to do. And whether it's somebody who wants to be a photographer and is really talented, and I know a top photographer who needs an assistant and they can uh, show them the ropes about the entertainment industry and to make one phone call. It's wonderful to do that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've worked with a lot of veterans, um, Interesting thing with Navy SEALs, who I've taught a bunch, they're taught their whole lives to hide their emotional life, whereas an actor needs to access his emotional life. Some of them would host, but they don't necessarily make good transformational actors because you have to access your emotional life to be a fine actor. I think you have to act your emotional life to be a fine writer, too, and a director and a producer, but... Um, I mean, I got a, a, a guy that I just started working with, and he's got a bunch of physical ills. So part of that process is you've got to address those physical ills because they're causing that stuff to manifest itself in his acting work. You have to open up the channels so that your emotional life can, can follow through. Yeah. No, that's key. Yeah. It's got to be hard to do that, but... It's great that you that you do that and help them out. Well, it's been a wonderful uh, path for me as well. Uh, honestly, I get a lot out of it. It's not always realize it reinforces all of the, the sort of back to basics that we have to do when we go and do acting. I might anytime you think you know it all, you're in deep trouble, or anytime you stop listening, you're in deep trouble. Uh, it's the worst thing a director can do is not listen to other people in my opinion no no that makes i've heard stories from people about working with directors and that happening but uh so patrick this has been awesome thank you so much i usually try to only hold people an hour so well it's time for me to get some soup with my lovely wife i love you you take care of yourself and i want to buy you a t buy a t-shirt to support you oh dude i appreciate that so is that something that you can no, I'll send you? I'll, I'll email you the link. 
Yeah, well, that sounds great. And uh, I'll wear it someplace good. Take care of yourself. I'll see you for volume two. Man, Patrick said something that really hit home. So some people that listen to our podcast know me, which is so cool that people support us, but most don't. And recently my father passed away and uh, he was sick and still it stings knowing that he's not going to be around, you know, to be around for me and my family and see my daughter grow up. But uh, he was hurting physically and uh, he wasn't able to breathe well. But one thing in the interview that Patrick said is you can't take your possessions with you when you die. It's just what people say afterwards. And the outpouring of support support from people saying how great of a man my father was and just me looking back on how great of a dad he was, uh, that, that's what it's all about. So, uh, so yeah, so that was, I'm getting a little teary right now, but, uh, just one thing I've been telling anyone, if you have someone important in your life, make sure you tell them that they're important just by saying, I love you. Even though you think, Hey, they know, just say it. I was lucky enough to see my dad on Easter and tell him how I felt and give him a big hug. He gave me a big bear hug and a big kiss on the cheek and, uh, Something I'll never forget. I'm lucky I had that. So you do the same if you had the opportunity. And uh, yeah, don't forget, back to business, Patrick Kilpatrick, his book, Dying for a Living, Volume 1, Upbringing, PatrickKilpatrick.com. I'll put the link in the episode notes. And don't forget your homework, Under Siege 2, Dark Territory. Dude, nothing beats a Seagal movie. Honestly, you'll enjoy it. So don't forget to review rate share our podcast follow us on all social media at sequels only and don't forget to check out our website sequels good night